I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Black Widow. I tell people my sister moved out west. You're a science teacher. Your husband, he renovates houses. You're thinking about moving, but you're going to wait until the interest rates go down. That's not my story. Before I was an Avenger, I made mistakes. And a lot of enemies. His call signs Taskmaster. He controls the Red Room. They're manipulated, fully conscious, but no choices. I should have come back for you. How many others are there? Enough. We have to go back to where it all started. So they never do that to anyone again. We're a family. We fight with you. You won't win. I've always found it best. Not to look into the past. Okay, you got a plan or shall I just stay duck and cover? My plan was to drive us away. Where your plan sucks. At some point we all have to choose what the world wants you to be and who you are. I made my choice. I'm done running. Here's what's gonna happen. Natasha, don't slouch. I'm not slouching. You're going to get a big hunch. Mm, listen to your mother. Oh my God, this- Up, up, listen. All right, enough, all of you. I didn't say anything, that's not fair. With us are Brendan Agnew of Synapse. It's, uh, it's Red Guardian, actually. <laughs> and Mackenzie Eastrom of Rainbow Connection and video game, the movie, the podcast. Das Vidanya. <laughs> it has like sparrow egg between my thighs. <laughs> it has been more than two years since we talked about the cinematic release of Spider-Man Far From Home. And even back then, I expressed genuine distress over the amount of time that we would have to wait, not knowing it would be even longer, not knowing what 2020 had in store for us. This is something that a lot of folks that consider Marvel to be a blight on cinema would scoff at. But for me, we're looking at a brighter and frankly better written alternate version of our own world. Our villains in real life are shit and boring and transparent and escape justice unpunished. And our heroes are thin on the ground and so many keep disappointing us by turning out to be not so great, including, ironically, a Marvel director. And it's not coincidental uh, that the moment we got WandaVision earlier this year, I suddenly started writing my 10th, my 11th, my 12th and my 13th books after a year of writer's block. Marvel 
is part of what keeps me moving forward. There were other contributing factors, definitely. There was an, an, an artist I crossed paths with who's done some amazing work for me, a certain podcast that talks about the books themselves and really put some fire into my um, creative drive. But Marvel coming back and delivering WandaVision most definitely helped. And the films the TV, the comics, and the games give us heroes that we can wholeheartedly engage with, and if the heroes disappoint us, we can put it down to bad writing or studio decisions, and they can come back from that. In real life, it's much harder. To put it mildly, as I've ventured back to the cinema over the past couple of weeks to watch In the Heights, F9 The Fast Saga, and Black Widow, it's been a relief. It's been kind of a so, that, so this is what normal used to kind of sort of feel like. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This one was directed by Kate Shortland, known for dramas like Somersault Law and Berlin Syndrome. And it becomes apparent immediately that Kate is out to focus on the drama over pyrotechnics. Meanwhile, it was written by Eric Pearson, who cut his teeth scripting those Marvel shorts that we used to see about a decade ago. Remember those? The funny thing happened on the way to Thor's hammer, the Agent Carter, effectively a pilot for the TV show. He wrote those. Uh, he did uncredited script work on Thor Ragnarok and Infinity War and Endgame, and he co-wrote Godzilla vs. Kong, and this was his first fully written screenplay. The script was actually pretty strong. There were many other strengths to this film, and we will be talking about that in due course. But the way I've laid this out, we're going to do something a little different today. We are looking at a five-act structure, with each act attempting to do something different. The three central ones, two, three, four, each reintroducing one of Natasha's family from Act 1. And Act 5 brings the themes together for resolution. And as Brendan said just before we started recording, it's very brisk. I've seen it three times and it never dragged. It was just like, oh, we're here already. Okay. And that's good. It's, it's, taken, it's taken many things from Captain America the Winter Soldier. And one of them is pacing. It stops for drama more in that it is confident, standing in place, and letting the characters sit and talk, putting the fights and chases on hold to crucially remind us what's at stake. But it never langers, and I was never bored. Before we get to the structure, it's notable that this is the first film released after Marvel began to roll out their direct MCU tie-in TV shows, and that was never the intention. We should have originally finished Black Widow and The Eternals before WandaVision even happened. And one of the things I've seen folks on our Discord talking about is that they wanted more Black Widow. Like we've now gotten used to five and a half hour banquets and a two hour meal could potentially leave us feeling still hungry. We've gotten kind of used to a different formula in, in uh, recent months. So um, what were the experiences of our guests and, uh, and Sharon as well? Well, I did find that it was surprisingly brisk, as you said, like very straightforward. There's a tendency in a lot of these kind of spy thrillers to get extremely convoluted at some point or another for their own sake. And I really enjoyed that this didn't do that. And I've been pretty mixed on the Marvel TV stuff. I really, really liked WandaVision right up until the end and Falcon and Winter Soldier just didn't grab me, so I was more than happy to just get to see a Marvel project from the beginning to the end with 
a short enough runtime that they couldn't really get in their own way. There's always a potential stumbling block of the, the Marvel shows feeling like, well, how much of this is padding to keep it from just it could have been a movie versus how much is just like really important to the the theming and the characters and the story they're trying to tell and you know i'm i'm sure there's like a, a personal difference as to where everyone lands on that but you know i agree with mckenzie i was you know i really liked the chance to get all this marvel tv like it's been it's been nice to have that as a different format but going to the movie theater and basically like basically getting a bond movie set in the marvel universe was really cool because it's been a while since we had any bond movie and it's been a long damn time since we had like one of the more kind of like fun focused ones that plays in the same sort of slightly sillier comic book-esque areas that this does so well like moonraker it does feel like roger moore except it through a modern lens and if the bond movies ever cared about character the, the TV style format, you're absolutely right about the, the experiences that we've had with that have kind of adjusted us slightly, I think. And one thing I found when I was watching Marvel TV shows has been the, uh, the feeling of, okay, if maybe they intended for this to be a movie and they've broken it up and expanded on it. Like there's little bits of padding or things that make you feel like maybe a TV show wasn't their original intention for this and they've adapted it. So I think for me, I got a little bit of a sense of that from Low Key. I, I did get a bit of a sense of it from The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, but I couldn't figure no. out <clears throat> yeah. um, where the padding would be. One Division is obviously definitely intended to be yeah, a TV no, show. That was very much deli uh, deliberately like, this week they're doing I Love Lucy. Yeah, this exactly. week they're doing Bewitched, Full House, Modern Family. Uh, yeah, that's just text. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But but the I found the the weird thing was I found myself doing the reverse a little bit with Black Widow. I kept thinking, okay, well you could break this up into episodes here and here and here. And why would they expand? And what would they stretch to make mm. this into a TV show? Everyone's been saying that they had a lot of fun with this. Um, I I feel like I still really really got a lot out of it, but I wasn't having fun from the very beginning with the. Um, like the, the working to up towards the intro sequence with the cover version of um, Smells Like Teen Spirit. That intro sequence is horrendous. It's so heart-wrenching. Oh, it's it, a real gut punch. Yeah. It lays down some of the core themes of the movie that we will definitely be talking about in detail um, over the course of this show. But uh, this brings me to the, another fairly large overarching thing. You mentioned, uh, Mackenzie, on the Discord, that while you liked Black Widow as a movie, you're becoming tired of Marvel's female heroes, all seemingly the ones at the front and the prominent ones, emerging from a background of abuse and manipulation. And Natasha, obviously... It would be easier to list the women who don't have extreme <laughs> abuse. Let's Agent Carter... It would be easier, but let's actually go through this. You're right. Agent Carter actually doesn't come from um, a miserable She, she has a little bit of light workplace bullying. Yeah. But Yelena in this, definitely. Melina in this, definitely. Not Pepper Potts, but definitely Wanda. Definitely Gamora. And definitely Nebula. Carol. Car yeah. Carol uh, comes from being manipulated, gaslit, and uh, effectively used as a weapon. A rather prominent female character in Loki, just in case our listeners haven't caught up yet like everyone must know who I mean someone who was uh, kidnapped manipulated gaslit and not abused and then kidnapped manipulated gaslit and abused 
Uh, oh, hang on. Mantis. Kidnapped, manipulated, gaslit, abused. And if we want to get into the television side of things, their first female-led project after Agent Carter was Jessica Jones. Oh, yeah. like whose who's lead villain is a gaslighting man mm-hmm. who yep. abused her. Wasp, Hope, Van Dyne wasn't abused, wasn't kidnapped, but she was, she was gaslit, gaslit about her mother yeah. for most of her adult she life. She was, yeah. She's, yeah. She is the most well-adjusted <laughs> that is like... Con- that you would consider like a hero in the same vein mm. as as Iron Man or the others, right? Pepper hasn't really gotten her her legs to do that yet, and Agent Carter just doesn't get to do anything in any of the movies, and yeah. then presumably just gets married and settled down, which is you know lovely. But yeah. and Sharon Carter is doing fine right up to the point where her she finds out that she's been gaslit by her employers for quite some time. Now she's Schrodinger's power broker. <laughs> yeah. She may or may not be evil. We don't know. Rewrites pending. Um, yeah, to, oh, to hang on, back... we, we forgot Ghost from Ant-Man and the Wasp. Yep. Uh, who, I don't know, was she gaslit? But she's definitely in constant pain. Constant pain, yeah. Definitely some trauma so going the, on there. The point is now, that it seems like the women can't be taken seriously unless they're screaming! That what it ends up feeling like a lot of the time, whether or not this is the logic behind it or the intention behind it, is that it either feels like in order to have a female character be a hero something terrible has to have happened whereas if you have a man they will default to hero in most situations yeah, regardless of trauma yeah it's it's almost like there's this overriding opinion that for a woman to rise to the occasion something really fucking shit has to have happened to her in order to Um, demand that kind of response. Like, if she just had a normal upbringing and a normal job and then was hit with, oh, I don't know, aliens are here to take over the world, she wouldn't get involved unless something had already developed those I-must-defend-myself-and-everybody-around-me instincts. The women of Wakanda don't have to have this. No. They're interesting enough as it is. They don't, absolutely. And it it seems in part probably an effort to help people take women more seriously in these roles by showcasing that they can handle extremely dark stuff. But it just results in a very weirdly weighted space where you can't walk five miles without running into a woman who's been like brainwashed for the majority of her life. Mm. And you can't find one who hasn't if you search with the fine tooth comb. Yeah. I mean, to an extent, I think it's that there is a degree of, well, the circles these people run in are pretty dodgy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, but, a certain amount of trauma is expected for hmm. a superhero. <laughs> the standard template for Marvel male heroes for the, the, a long while was kind of boy man. Like the uh, Tony Stark just waiting to grow up and deal with his daddy issues. Mm. The abuse and trauma men face in Marvel is occasionally targeted in the same manner that it is for their female characters. Uh, Winter Soldier obviously comes to mind. He had very specific mind control abuse. But otherwise, it's in a much less specific and targeted realm and i think that's one of the major differentiating factors here is the difference between a person who had bad things happen to them or a person who is defined by a massive amount of bad things happening to them yeah 
Um, and actually, this does impact on the female characters because if they've been a, if they're a character who's been gaslit, all of their choices are called into question because they're going by information that's often they're misinformed about or they've been lied to. So ultimately, that by its very nature takes away their agency, and in their quest to actually get that agency back, they pretty much wear themselves out. And it's like, I'm finally beyond my pain and I can start making decisions. Oh, I guess I'm done then. <laughs> it almost feels like the combination of Natasha's arc is the getting the ability to fully make her own decisions and then choosing to die. Yeah, which is, I mean, that there is a grace now that has been added and more volume to that decision. I think what annoyed me was actually not Natasha, but Yelena going, okay, now I'm out in the world. I can start making decisions for myself. By the way, I'm going to be doing the Yelena voice a lot of the way through this. I think she's a fantastic character and I cannot wait to see more of uh, Florence Pugh in the, uh, in the MCU. She was a big get for them. She is, to me, the beating heart of this movie, even over and above Nat. Um, but she she sort of comes out and I'm finally buying things for myself and like like at the in the end like post credit stinger she's wearing this strange eclectic clothing that looks like share from Clueless but by way of of like I went past a yard sale and I got this jewelry I kind of like yeah. it she's finally making her own decisions and she's sort of hugging on this grave and then she stands up and fucking Val's there and she's like okay so clearly villainous woman who is lying to me and using me and manipulating me please tell me where next to go oh i am to kill hawkeye okay that is fine what the fuck movie i honestly i hate val yeah i hate val she is the opposite of drama she steps on everything she's been in what three scenes so far she's twice in winter soldier and she's once in this she works with some idiot like john walker going i could be the new captain america and and she's like right well i can fix that for you and i'm obviously evil and it's like she's kind of trying to do a bit like evil nick fury by way of tony stark and i like julia louise dreyfus and i kind of i would like her if she was a character that that heroes would, would look at and go, well, you're obviously evil then. And But the fact that Yelena is like, right, I've been lied to my entire existence. I put all my faith in you. It's, uh, that it was just, that left such a bitter taste in my mouth. And obviously, perceptibly, we actually got those scenes backwards, wherein we're, we're supposed to watch Black Widow in, in uh, this time last year, in 2020, and go, well, who's this then? She seems a little dodgy, but the, the fact that she's like blowing her nose while Yelena's whistling for Nat at the very end, and it's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. You're stepping on the drama. You are so much worse than Korg. You are so much worse than Scott turning up and going, this is a great moment, when Hope and uh, Hank Pym reconcile. The idea that these women can now finally make choices for themselves is like, slow down. She's got to go through the Dark Avengers first. It's like, she just got out of that shit. We also don't have any real sense of like what her deal is. And so whenever she comes into a situation, it's not like a, oh, so now we have this clearly defined element at play. Mm. Like Nick Fury, when we were introduced to him, we already knew that what shield was mm. like, we it's like, oh, OK, this guy's the guy behind the big spy thing. Ah, OK, I know. I know what this deal is. But it's like with her, it's like, oh, OK, so I, I guess you're you're going to. I, I guess we're just setting stuff up. It's it's the difference between like doing the Marvel thing well, like they've done in the past, and this feels well like they've 
got a lot of crossed wires and delayed projects. And mm. it also and feels it like the conciliary in the Amazing Spider-Man films, played by Michael Massey, R.I.P.D., the one who sort of turned yeah. up and was like, "Ah, so you kind of want to start a Sinister Six, do you?" R.I.P.D. That idea as well. But like, she's like trying to assemble an evil team. We get it. It's uh, if you look at the chronology, it's actually been eight years. Nap and Steve were on the run for three before Infinity War. Then there's a five-year gap between the snap and the blip. That means that Yelena has had eight years of key adult growth, and she's still taking orders from this bozo. Uh, well, there's at least five years. We know that there is... Like, if, if it went the end of Captain America Civil War, and then two weeks went by, and then the beginning of Infinity War, it's still five years. And that also means that Val is the kind of person who, in a response to the blip, and a response to there being no more Avengers, goes, you know, I could probably make some money off of this thing. That's how she's lightly characterized as a mercenary. And it's like, we get that. We, we get where this character type belongs, around the Justin Hammer area. Yelena should not be taken in by this. She's an NFT saleswoman. The thing that you brought up, like that scene especially feels like a bit of a wet fart because if you end the movie on Yelena's whistle and a lack of response, that's fucking perfect as a, like, not as a perfect movie, but as in a perfect moment to end the film on. Oh, someone's and doing a re-edit, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. It's, 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 it's one, of the, one of the few times where I'm just like, yeah, just skip the, the post credit stinger because so much of the other stuff is just mm. thematically and character coherent and focused. Or get up to that whistle and then immediately leave the cinema with your fingers in your ears going, la, 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 <laughs> la. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, it's okay. You won't be ruining any dialogue. It's just Julia Louise Dreyfus blowing her nose. So yeah, we haven't even got to the film yet. But I just wanted to like I was actually going to save that bit to the end. But it just it was very apropos when we're talking about it's going to inform everything we discuss. The long road to actually being able to make your own decisions and choices for women, which effectively it's a, a battle not to be infantilized. More or less. Yeah. Yelena is going to be working for somebody who is manipulating her immediately after escaping from different people who manipulated her. Well, not immediately. So eight to five years. <laughs> as, as soon as we, the audience, knows. Yeah, we yeah. don't know what she's been doing in the meantime. But so did Natasha, because when Natasha left for S.H.I.E.L.D., they mm. were still run by Nazis. Yeah, I, I noted that. The um, like her, the thing she had to do uh, to to defect to S.H.I.E.L.D., blow up a little girl. It's like, so, so really, she was just swapping targets. She was like, I went west, and then they said, simply blow up this little girl, and you will be free to kill other people for us and set fire to hospitals. Mm. So when Loki said to her, you lie and kill in the service of liars and killers, he really wasn't kidding. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do like the fact that... Um, it was strange, actually, watching it. I, I watched it on the same day as uh, Loki episode 5 came out, and... It was the two halves of that conversation mm -hmm. effectively moving towards their own redemptions. And it was so weird to, to walk home from one and into the other. Is this love, Agent Romanoff? Love is for children. I owe him a debt. Tell me. Before I worked for S.H.I.E.L.D., I, uh... Well... I made a name for myself. 
I have a very specific skill set. I didn't care who I used it for. Or on. I got on S.H.I.E.L.D.'s radar in a bad way. Agent Barton was sent to kill me. He made a different call. And what will you do if I vow to spare him? Not let you out. Oh, no, but I like this. Your world in the balance, and you bargain for one man. Regimes fall every day. I tend not to weep over that. I'm Russian. Where I was. And what are you now? It's really not that complicated. I got red in my ledger. I'd like to wipe it out. Can you? Can you wipe out that much red? Drakov's daughter? Sao Paulo? The hospital fire? Barton told me everything. Your ledger is dripping. It's gushing red, and you think saving a man no more virtuous than yourself will change anything? This is the basest sentimentality. This is a child of prayer. Pathetic! You lie and kill in the service of liars and killers. You pretend to be separate, to have your own code, something that makes up for the horrors. But they are part of you and they will never go away. Even though Natasha is manipulating him, he still absolutely gets to her. Mm, yeah. And this film hammers that home. Yeah. It has the echo of it Yeah, in more than one way. Yeah, they deliberately use certain words, like when um, uh, Alexei says, both your ledgers must be dripping red. I could not be more proud. It's a strange series of echoes. Mm. Speaking of echoes, um, did any of you folks uh, notice quite the level of influence that Steve Rogers has had on Natasha Romanoff? As a matter of fact, I've kind of had like a, a pet reading of the character and like her place in the MCU that specifically in relation to Steve Rogers and his effect on her mm -hmm. from Winter Soldier through Avengers Age of Ultron and like if you if you look at Nat, you know, she is very much, you know, sort of playing the the sort of spy thing. The even when she's in the Avengers, when we first see her in Iron Man 2, she's still, you know, doing undercover stuff. And in the Avengers, we see her basically turn into Steve's second in command. Mm -hmm. Like if you if you want some kind of a comparison, it's like, I don't know, she's like mainly the the, the senior non-commissioned officer, like the first sergeant or whatever, like you know, whenever Steve gives an order, she's the one who makes sure that all the component parts get done. Mm. And this movie really reinforces that both through her like kind of, you know, yeah, okay, I guess I'll go, you know, smack these boys upside the head until they start calling each other again or whatever. But just the way she like works her family and seeing her use like the, the emotional weapons basically that she's had to use as survival mechanisms, learning to reclaim those as methods to like connect to her family is one of the strongest parts of this movie. And that like that sort of like empathy feels like something that at least got affected by by Steve Rogers. I mean, like they straight up do that. We can't even we can't just steal a car. Mm. Call back to Winter Soldier. <laughs> <laughs> 
She treats him uh, strangely in Winter Soldier uh, relative to the other appearances because she's finally kind of alone with him and they're, they're real personalities are being brought forwards because they're under extreme pressure and who they actually are comes to the fore. Where did Captain America learn how to steal a car? Nazi Germany. Hmm. And we're borrowing. Take your feet off the dash. All right, I have a question for you, uh, which you do not have to answer. I feel like if you don't answer it, though, you're kind of answering it, you know? What? Was that your first kiss since 1945? That bad, huh? I didn't say that. Well, it kind of sounds like that's what you're saying. No, I didn't. I just wondered how much practice you've had. You don't need practice. Everybody needs practice. It was not my first kiss since 1945. I'm 95. I'm not dead. Nobody special, then? <laughs> Believe it or not, it's kind of hard to find someone with shared life experience. No, that's all right. You just make something up. What, like you? I don't know. The truth is a matter of circumstance. It's not all things to all people all the time. Neither am I. It's a tough way to live. It's a good way not to die, though. You know, it's kind of hard to trust someone when you don't know who that someone really is. Yeah. Who do you want me to be? How about a friend? <laughs> well, there's a chance you might be in the wrong business, Rogers. She's mystified that someone can be so morally upright. And she's like, there's got to be a... Like, she doesn't say it out loud, but she studies him in a kind of... I've got to, like, find out where it is that you... Like, what, why you're doing this thing where you beat people up for a living and somehow still believe you're doing a good thing. I don't think it's so much the morally upright. I think it's the, uh, where's the front? Where does the where does the mask finish? Because mm. she's a person who there is, at this stage in her life, there is no situation she goes into where there isn't a mask of some kind up, with the possible exception of being at the Barton farmhouse, which we don't know about yet. Mm. And I think the way she interacts with Steve, certainly for the first part of Winter Soldier, she's trying to find out where the edges of his mask sit. She's really trying to live in a way that is more authentic to her, comes through a lot in this, which I really appreciated. And Brendan, what you were saying there about her being able to uh, shift her perspective of those, the skills she's learned, the tools she's been given by this incredibly horrendous uh, upbringing and um, and and how she's been controlled. Ultimately, she doesn't she doesn't relearn a whole new skill set. But what she does do is she finds a way to make those tools work in a more positive way. And I think yes, you're absolutely onto something that the uh, the influence of Steve and in particular seeing how deeply and the level of commitment with which he went to bat for Bucky made her think maybe he'd do that for me too and that was something that nobody had ever offered her before. Yeah. You okay? Yeah. What's going on? When I first joined S.H.I.E.L.D. I thought I was going straight. But I guess I just traded in the KGB for Hydra. I thought I knew his lies I was telling, but... I guess I can't tell the difference anymore. There's a chance you might be in the wrong business. I owe you. 
it was the other way around. And it was down to me to save your life. And you be honest with me. Would you trust me to do it? I would now. And I'm always honest. Well, you seem pretty chipper for someone who just found out they died for nothing. Wow. Guess I just like to know who I'm fighting. And it informs upon her decisions near the end of this. In a, there's a straightforward echo of of Bucky in Taskmaster, and it's it doesn't have the same personal connection, and yet it does because Natasha has kept this girl in her heart, mm. in like shut away in a kind of this is my worst possible moment. I think it has more of a personal connection. I can save it to the end or I can tell you now if you want. Go for it. Okay, so to my my reading of Natasha's determination to save Antonia is that when she blew up that apartment, when she gave them the nod to do that, what she was killing was the little girl in herself that was still hanging on to the idea that she could have a life in America. She was, she, although it was to transition her to working for S.H.I.E.L.D. rather than for the KGB, she was ultimately cutting herself off from the last bit of innocence she had left. And ever since then, she's been terribly grown up. Absolutely. And so her, her determination that Antonia can be redeemed is her way of trying to reconnect with that young part of herself that got abandoned so long ago. And the key for it, for me, is the moment when she lets her out of the cell and she says, you're gonna come after me and that's okay. Your average film will have a three-act structure because of the time constraints. Setup, escalation, payoff. But this one really feels distinct because it's got five separate locations. Like the, the first act is one very specific timeline that they stick with. They hold you in 1995 Ohio. And that opening is merciless. Like Marvel had no idea that they were gonna, people were going to be coming back to this. They, they knew people would be coming back after a year of waiting and at the end of phase three and like, right, the Infinity Saga's over. We've had our epilogue with uh, Spider-Man 2 and um, now we're going to, I suppose, kind of mop up what happened in the past. But I'll say again, I know that this was fun for a lot of people, but I sort of sat down and just started feeling terrible. And then the more girls screaming in freight containers, the more I was like, this is not pulling its punches. This does not mind being nasty as hell. Just sort of waving your hand and saying a Marvel movie is having less and less of a, of a real incisive meaning. There are commonalities between all of them, but the difference between this and say Thor Ragnarok is quite significant. If you imagine each Marvel movie has sliders, they have different priorities to each slider. Drama, comedy, spectacle, world building, setup, payoff, establishment, resolution. And I like the fact that we're getting a greater variety of how each one goes about itself. There is a lot of, oh, there's a lot of humor, humor but there, there is a very different slant on it than what people usually, the, the kind of funny that normally earns Marvel criticism is that 
somebody stepped on a line with a funny line or um, they threw a joke in where a joke didn't need to be. And there, you're right in that there is very little of that in here at all. But what there is, and, and most of this comes from Florence Pugh, we'll talk about her again soon, but the, um, the, the black humour that she infuses her whole character with feels very Gen Z to me. It's, it's very much, uh, the world is shit. The world I'm in is terrible. And I'm just going to make whatever I can with what you throw at me. Hmm. This, this would, would be a, be a much cool less way to cool die. way to die. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> Bingo. This is, yeah, Sharon specifically uh, cited the generation that were like Tide Pods. This would be a cool way to die. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's either this or a slow starvation in a house I can't afford to rent, so it's, why not? <laughs> the Tide Pods was always, I mean, uh, w whether people knew it or not, it was a power grab. It was, okay, you folks are going to kill us anyway. How about we take control of that? And we'll, you know, we'll die in a way that you consider to be stupid. It's the virgin suicides. A little bit, yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, uh, to your point, I think you're you're right that this is like, for example, in 2014, we had Winter Soldier and Guardians and those movies, I would argue, they're like fun in vastly different ways. Hmm. Um, and this is th this does feel not just because of that, that opening. This does feel different like this. This feels like it's on a slightly angled off the main railroad track from hmm. other Marvel movies, even if you take the. Well, they're playing in the sort of winter soldier waters of more spy thriller sorts of stuff, because like that opening, it's like, you know, to to reference James Bond again, you know, every James Bond movie begins with an opening mission that is being successfully completed. So we see the end of that. So that's what we see here. It's just the most horrific possible version of that. So like mm -hmm. they're way too young to be doing this. Half the people aren't informed about the parameters of the mission. You know, one of them is completely in the dark. And they wind up victoriously somewhere else that is just absolutely the worst place to be for them. Mm. Yeah. This is, I would say, the whole thing, you could definitely point to it being Winter Soldier's little sister in, in many different ways. And there is a, there's almost a castling of uh, Bucky Barnes and uh, Natasha Romanoff in the sense that she's a Russian who had to pretend to be an American. Mm. And he's an American who was convinced he was a Russian. Mm. Uh, I've written down this is less there is less fun than your usual marvel to be had here at least for me and that is by design uh, this is about women being kidnapped shipped brainwashed drugged controlled used exploited until they can no longer bring profit to their controllers after which they are disposed of like race hounds that's the hard repeating subtext and it never lets you forget that this isn't James Bond, which glamorizes the jet-setting life of a killer spy in 80% of its installments. Notably, I think Sharon and I like the 20% that don't, that don't glamorize do that. it yeah. much more. This is far closer to the original Bourne trilogy, assuring you that the work that Natasha and her sisters were forced into wasn't the least bit fun, or shiny, or enviable, or desirable as a substitute for our own mundane existences that we take for granted. It makes things abundantly clear that becoming an Avenger was an elevation for her far beyond the life that she would have hoped for. It was a golden opportunity, giving yet more meaning to her ultimate decision. Yes, I yes. think it's one of the Marvel movies that treats its violence as kind of horrific the most. It's not just doing hurrah, the people are fighting the bad guys and we get to see the bad guys get punched and that's exciting. You have to watch 
people who don't deserve this violence put upon them experience pretty intense violence. Like, it's not pulling its punches in the same way that a lot of the other movies do. And I think for the tone it's going for and the story it's telling, that is the correct choice. But it does definitely lend it less of a fun popcorn movie uh, vibe and a little bit more of a take take this one a little more seriously emotionally vibe that is i think it works very well i mean it definitely it begins with like shield agents shooting rifles at a plane full of little girls who are the ones who are supposed to be the good guys exactly and then it also um you know it does have like some of the the roger moore-esque trappings but it's they're able to be there not because we're trying to go out there and silly because Roger Moore went to space because Star Wars went to space. It's because this is a world that has to deal with billionaires with flying robot suits and gods with thunder hammers. And like sometimes in order to stay out of the way of all of that extra bullshit, you genuinely do need a floating skyscraper to be your secret villain lair, <laughs> which which means that like you you get to make use of the the genre grab bag that Marvel has without watering down your emotional impact because this is just the world they live in that is a strange uh you're you're absolutely right that the floating sky base is something out of uh moonraker spy who loved me where it's under the sea uh only it's uh, imagine if daniel craig's bond was like if you want me to go and take down the floating skyscraper you're going to need to give me a flying car it doesn't have the grounding of craig stuff but it has the absolute seriousness in there yeah and this is a world with like invisible countries and floating battleships that Mm. just hang out outside new york because their costume superheroes are fighting aliens so it's like there there's no limit and even though they get big in the setting like they they call their shot in that opening the focus is always on this family unit even when they're not fully assembled yeah. yet and they keep that focus during during throughout all the action sequences even when things get like a little big they're always focused on these characters and all of the things immediately related to the like their emotional stakes they do also have internal references to this idea of the golden light of the superhero story and how that reflects in the shit pit that people often find themselves in on the periphery of those stories. Mm. And one of the things that occurred to me, I don't know whether there's any accuracy in this or not, but the opening scenes in Ohio, it's all got this gorgeous golden light around it. As they leave the city, there's this Americana surrounding them. They pass the the, um, stars and stripes lit up on the bridge. They've got American pie on the stereo they drive past a Burger King the mundane life that we take for granted exactly and there's a baseball game yes that was it I knew there was was a I knew there was a sports thing involved Um, like Michael Bay shot the shot the b-roll for Armageddon yeah (laughs) absolutely and then and and things like uh, you know Mom is very caring and loving and picks me up when I bump my knee and mm. then dad comes home from work and they're all kind of lovey-dovey with each other and we can't quite see what's going on. And then there's a moment when they arrive at the airfield and the music turns off and then the golden light disappears. Mm. And then even when they get to the tropical island, it's bright sunshine, but it's a very harsh bright sunshine. And the whole tone has shifted at that point. And it's like, I, I wondered if there was almost an element of this is how... Uh, either Natasha or Yelena remembered Ohio, but it wasn't really quite like that. Mm. 
Uh, something that you said earlier, Mackenzie, I put down a very similar note. The fights in this are, for the most part, anti-violence. If you remember the beginning of uh, Winter Soldier, I, like for all the like, you know, brutal political thriller that it is, the uh, raid on the Lemurian Star, the stealth mission, is like, oh my god, yeah, fucking go, go, Captain America's finally kicking wholesale ass. That whole the choreography of that sequence is dazzling, and the Henry Jackman music sort of just propelling you through, and you're like, fuck yeah. And because it's being approached with Steve's previous World War II goodies versus baddies sensibility, because Steve doesn't know any better yet, even though what he is doing here is just Black Ops for S.H.I.E.L.D., which is what Natasha's been doing for years, everyone he smacks in the face is a wicked Hydra agent, so we like it. But then... In this, as you say, little girls get shot at, they escape in a way that should be like da -da 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 -da, like James Bond, we got away, but it's like clinging on desperation and the girls are freaking out. Their mother's shot, their father's clinging to the side of an aeroplane, and they're about to be separated. It is an action sequence that is frightening by design. And like Natasha, when she shouts, I'll kill all of you in uh, American and then shouts, you know, I'll, I'll shoot in Russian. When she gets very emotional, she defaults to speaking English. She has tied her emotional side to that part of her existence. It was, it was neat the way she wasn't just shouting all of that in Russian and it was just slowly degrading and heart-wrenching. And the first actual fight we see after that is when uh, Yelena takes down an, an, another widow. And that's not a fun, exhilarating fight that we're kind of mapping ourselves onto. Hey, the knife fight, yay, da 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 And then Yelena kills her and she bleeds to death. And Yelena feels terrible because she's been taken out of uh, with the, the red dust stuff. That's not a cool fight, and most of the fights in this are not cool, because, as, as you said, that, that you are, we are not supposed to wish for an outcome where one of the parties dies. Mm. Yeah. Which brings to mind one of the finest blockbusters ever made, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, the anti-action film where you are praying for things not to blow up, which is very rare. So, like, because you specifically brought that up, one of the things that I appreciated about Black Widow, specifically in how we've talked about how it relates to the Winter Soldier, is it consciously breaks up its action beats into shorter segments. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot of really cool, like, multi-part set pieces in Winter Soldier that have, like, these really neat arcs to them, but they're also, like, fairly lengthy sequences. And Black Widow, like, it makes sense because we're dealing with people who have slightly even lower powered abilities than Steve Rogers. So like they're more likely to try and run or hide or, you know, find an exit instead of definitively ending a conflict with a superior fighting force. So it kind of like makes sense there and keeps the tension going. But it also means that all of these, these conflicts feel very much like character punctuation and never go on for too much longer. And they do a really neat balancing act because in, in addition to that, Kate Shortland directs the hell out of people getting kicked in the face real good. So, mm. like, there there are some, like, hits and bumps. Like, they don't cut away on the impact. Like, you see the impacts happen. Like, there's a, sp a particular, uh, particular one where, like, Natasha gets thrown against a doorway and she bounces off of it. And That's the just, one I said, Jesus, like, her foot and head slam against either side of the uh, archway. 
yeah, no, I was watching. I was like, holy fuck, ScarJo, you're older than I am. And like, <laughs> and like, I had trouble getting up out of bed this morning. Like, I know they've got stunt people doing that, but I really appreciate how how Shortland as a as an action director who I haven't seen like really dig her teeth into this scale of things before, like mm. establishes a familiar sort of like action movie language but in a different sort of, like, very different purpose for it. The, that fight in particular, you're not, like, you, you're well aware of the fact that they're sisters, and you're like, uh, at least I was watching, going, no, be ca- just that's your sister. Be careful. Be ca- don't you fight. Um, do I have to separate you two? Yeah, th- <laughs> this was my favourite fight in the whole thing because it really felt like the way me and my sister used to fight when we were Jesus young Christ. Not the intensity of it. It never got quite that bad, but there were... Or like, the choreography? There were occasions when <laughs> You strangled her with a curtain? Nearly got nastier than they could have done. I almost bounced her off a marble hearth once and she, she banged me up against a wall. She did bite you in the bum. That was when we were very little. I'm talking about when we were older. <laughs> These but scars run it, deep. It, it, my point is <laughs> <laughs> that this, this You bit me right of, here on, on my posterior. <laughs> this, this sense of... Um, you are my sister and I love you, but I will fight the shit out of you if we fall out about something. It just, it felt so hmm. genuine. It felt so authentic. I mean, on paper, Florence Pugh having to effectively fight for her supper and be like, right, so if I'm going to be next Black Widow, then uh, I suppose I must beat old Black Widow. <laughs> That's how it works. It's conquer's rules. And it ended up being the stalemate that probably <laughs> it should have been. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Going back to the Captain America thing, by the way, uh, especially around around this point when she's uh, dealing with her her fence the uh, the guy who lives in the uh, caravan um, the British guy it plays a nice bit of what like it sounds like sort of a synth brass version of Steve's Alan Silvestri Captain America refrain it's like nah, da, 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 da. so it's like it's that but it's slightly off and and that I interpreted as just Steve's influence is sort of like is 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 playing, and around this point, it's you know, since we're now in the in the present, or this is in fact the past still to us because it's just after Civil War. This is when Nat would have been feeling the most like she had betrayed Steve because when the chips were down, she didn't back him up. She ended up on uh, what she can now see was uh, uh, not so much the wrong team, but the team that if they won, everything was going to go to shit. Yeah, and also it's a it's a callback to one of the lines in Winter Soldier when he she says, "What do you want me to be?" Mm. and he says, "How about a friend?" and you get the echo of that or the refrain of that in this: "People who have friends don't call me." Yeah, I, I always keep coming back to Civil War. It's fantastic because the the more time goes on, the more it's like, you know what? If General Ross was in charge of the Avengers, which is what the Sokovia Accords were about, we would be fucked. <laughs> But yeah, it's almost like the Sokovia Accords were just another way for General Ross to control superheroes like he was trying to do in the Hulk days. Yeah. Herm, herm, herm. But the, <laughs> I mean, what that really came down to was that Tony thought he could play the system because he resides at the top of the system. He knows what it's like to basically be able to walk into a meeting where they are dead set on these being the parameters and start going, let's totally redefine this and toss out the parameters and 
he he believed he could negotiate them around. That's really where Tony was coming at this from before it started getting really personal. Steve has been at the bottom for a lot of his life. He knows what it's like to be the person who is told no. What did your father die of? Mustard gas. He was in the 107th Infantry. I was hoping I could be assigned Your mother? She was a nurse in a TB ward. Got hit, couldn't shake it. Sorry, son. Look, just give me a chance. You'll be ineligible on your asthma alone. Is there anything you can do? I'm doing it. I'm saving your life. And when he finally got to be in a position of responsibility, he wanted to retain that responsibility. Whereas Tony is trying to pass off as much responsibility as he can because ultimately he is still a kid testing his his paternal setup to the absolute limit, but ultimately wanting that paternal authority to come through for him and say, it's okay, Tony, you don't have to be in charge of everything. But when the question came to Nat, she is a follower at that stage. Mm -hmm. Prior to this movie, she was like, right, so who's the person in charge at this point? Nick's gone, so I guess at this stage I'm answering to Stark, and what Steve's saying is off script. She has spent her whole life, up until the Avengers, being shaped into a weapon that works in the shadows. Now she's finally an Avenger, finally a hero, finally respected, finally known, finally visible, and she wants to preserve that. The dark irony being, Ross would simply be another substitute for Drykov, a man telling her where to go and who to kill. The only other thing to note uh, on uh, when it comes back to uh, Civil War uh, and Winter Soldier is that the series of descending notes from Henry Jackman's work their way into the score here by Lorne Balfe. Um, when Alexei is clinging to the wing, just listen out for it there, that it's a different arrangement, but it's definitely there, and it sets you up for that Winter Soldier theme and the Winter Soldier echo shadow in Taskmaster. reason the violence in this movie hits a little bit harder in my opinion is that Natasha is still not anything other than a person. She's an extremely well trained person but she's not a super soldier or got a massive robot suit and she's not got the abilities of Hawkeye to do things from a distance she's very much fighting with her normal human body in extreme circumstances very close up and this movie goes out of its way to show you the bruises and say, well, she needs an ibuprofen after she fights because she can't keep up with people who are literally the God like from super space. beings. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's just a person. And so is Yolana. And so is Milena. I mean, obviously, Redguard is a little bit uh, of a different case, Question but mark. he's also has hasn't been at it for a little while. So we'll. We'll say he's a bit rusty. So when they're fighting people who have been, as this movie puts it, 
completely removed from their own human agency when they are fighting people who do still have that same physical limitation, but no longer have the self-preservation to take care of themselves and will just fight until the bitterest of ends. It It's going to be a little bit hard on them. And this movie doesn't shy away from that, which I like. Yeah, it deliberately inverts the, you know, sexy lady fighting sexy lady equals sexy time, not fight time trope that most action movies have of like, you know, cool, let's get the two ladies fine. That's going to be a nice time. And like there there's times when that's like a fun thing to do. Like, you know, I, I think that works in like The Mummy Returns. But but the way they're like, no, you know, these very athletic, very attractive young ladies fighting each other sucks. It's awful. Stop it. Someone stop the fighting. Which is only highlighted by Taskmaster, who in this movie, to many people's chagrin, is a woman. This has been one of the uh, points of contention, and I'll just break it down for you folks at home. We had a lengthy chat about this, but it went round and round in circles. And we don't necessarily want to throw longtime Marvel comic book fans who didn't get to see a cult favorite character on screen, don't want to throw them into the same exact bucket as misogynists, who will complain if any woman is given any position of prominence in a fictional work, or frankly, non-fictional capacity. The short of it is, Taskmaster is a dude from the comics from the early 80s called Anthony Masters, and he's the answer to the question of where do all these goons come from and who trains them. He's a regular human being who's just very, very good at mimicking other people's fighting abilities. He could have been a hero, but there was no money in it. He could have been a villain, but he figured out the heroes would just kick his ass and send him to prison. So instead, he's basically just a trainer, a coach. He schools hoods. I think the most interesting thing about him is the information that goes in about new fighting abilities has to erase something from his long-term memory. He only has so much memory to devote to fighting. So he becomes less and less himself the more he learns, which is what allowed him to be used as the ultimate sleeper agent at one point, someone who literally didn't even know he was a sleeper agent. One of the prevailing theories is it's assumed that when it comes to the Taskmaster we see in the movie Black Widow, most of the skill comes from the helmet analyzing people's movements. I don't think that's the case. I think the, one of the lines uh, delivered by uh, Drykov is she's a born mimic or she's you know, naturally gifted at imitation. If it is just the helmet, then that's Gunter from Futurama, the monkey that was clever because Farnsworth put a hat on him. So I hope that's not the case. My interpretation of the, the interface with the helmet is that it, it certainly enhances her skills and it's used as a means of communicating with her because clearly she's not, she's not interacting with the world in a uh, what would be considered to be a normal way except when it gets to the end and Drakov's influence is gone she's speaking hmm. she's recognizing something even if it's not who Natasha really is she's connecting with her um, somebody said the uh, clipping the USB drive into the back of her neck was giving her the fighting moves I think that she's watching Black Panther fight Hawkeye on uh, on the uh, airfield at the time. The, the helmet definitely tracks body movements, but this is an augmentation, not the source of this ability. 
like it's boosting her abilities, yeah. but it's not the entirety of her abilities. It's like Tony's suit. Tony's yeah. suit does not facilitate everything about what he's capable of doing. The difference being that Tony designed his suit and everything that comes from it, which is his power. If we are to take it that the helmet is the thing performing all the telemetry, she didn't design any of that herself. She is a laboratory monkey wearing a hat. And I could be wrong and we could have this proved to us later. Uh, that it's actually it's all, it was all in the helmet, or even worse, she never comes back again. As she is in this film, it feels like there could have been more of her. If there's going to be more of her later, it was a fantastic debut to me, because she was a, uh, a truly sad character along the lines of the Winter Soldier. Only she's even more like the Terminator when she's crawling along to try and kill Natasha at the end. That's like the endoskeleton at the end of the original Cameron film. But it feels like she's also the kind of character who could reclaim something of a life and being able to do that with other Black Widows. Mm, yeah. Well, she seems like the, the ultimate product of the Black Widow program. The, the, the whole point of Dracov seeing these girls as one of the best quotes in this, faceless weapons that he can just throw away. And even his own daughter was eventually reduced to being nothing but that to him. And it felt like um, the like what she could have done more in the film. The fact that she could have but didn't is, in essence, her character in this film until she is ev eventually freed, because they're all Black Widow. Every single one of these ladies is Black Widow. Yelena, Natasha, Melina, all of the ladies who come out of the Red Room are all programmed to be the same thing. The differences arise in, in what they are and aren't able to do. Yeah, they aren't permitted to bring their own individuality to what they can do, which the Avengers all are. That the um, I think possibly one of the major bonuses for Natasha of being part of that kind of fighting team rather than the Black Widows is that that ability to know that everybody brings a different skill set and, and hers happens to be of use. And being with the Avengers has made her significantly different to how she was the beginning of Iron Man 2 in her first appearance. Effectively, a S.H.I.E.L.D. version of Taskmaster. Yeah, it's made her better able to assess herself. And this is this is one of the really key elements of... Um, you know, we keep seeing the same story play out with um, with female heroes where they have these um, traumatic brainwashing style backgrounds where they're either conditioned psychologically or chemically altered or uh, mechanically implanted with something that, that controls the way they behave. But fundamentally, what it comes down to is denied the permission to make their own judgments about who they are and how they behave put in a position where they are forced to look outside of themselves for approval, for direction, and for, uh, for, for where to go when, when the bottom falls out. You know, when, when it all goes wrong, you will come back to me. That's what it all comes down to. It's, it's about this sort of sense of you're a resource and we own you. And ultimately, yes, while it is very frustrating to see the, the same story and not a lot else get a look in, fundamentally that is how so many women in the world in different ways in different parts of the world and in different circumstances but that is how they are treated resources the uh, the the line Joykov delivers the uh, the the only thing that there's too much of in the world the, the only thing that there is 
Uh, I think it's the only resource that there is an excess of in this world, world. something along those lines. Girls. Yeah, that's why I couldn't really find this film fun. Certainly not the first time I saw it. I actually like it better uh, more than the third time. Like it is a difficult word. Like I, I, I was impressed by it the first time around, but I actually put it lower on my overall rankings than it is now because it was a big emotional drain to watch. It was real in an uncomfortable and unpleasant way, which I feel is totally valid for the for the film to actually step into that zone and say, you know what, we're, we're not just going to sugarcoat this. We're not just going to make it that, you know, isn't, isn't it awesome to be a super spy? They could have made it like friggin' Charlie's Angels. Mm-hmm. But in this, Charlie is a motherfucker. Yeah, the, the, the line that you referenced with Dracov is like, makes him one of the most immediately hateable Marvel mm. villains and makes his, his eventual fate just so much more satisfying than, than it already it, would have been. His death and also when he gets beat up are the exceptions to that uh, anti-violent action movie that mm. uh, vibe that we are talking about earlier. Those are moments where you're supposed to enjoy that somebody's getting hurt. Yeah, And you know what? That's fine. Yeah. I also think I also think horrible male abusers of young women should probably be blown up in their own planes. It's great. Yeah, is it an accident that he looks so much like Harvey Weinstein, or is that just like... <laughs> You're not the first person to mention that. Yeah, I, I think uh, that, that, that there might be something in that. Mm. Um, if you're a creepy enough white man, it starts to really come out of your pores. I like Ew. the fact that he is dull. He's a yeah. boring He's villain. He's just this bland... Vaguely unpleasant person. Like when you finally meet him and he finally reveals who he is, you're like, "Oh, you, you're just that guy." Okay, finish him off, Natasha. Go, go. Yeah, but that's that's the beauty of the the uh, the battle of words that she has with him, is all around what is, let's face it, going to be one of his deepest fears, which is that, mate, you are insignificant. Ultimately, the things that you do, that you pin so much importance to, that you destroy other people's lives in order to achieve, don't matter in the long run. And she gets to him by laughing at him. Uh, Men are afraid that women will laugh at them, and women are afraid that men will kill them. It was a choice to have all the widow stings in this. I think the widow stings are probably the little doodads she throws on your neck and zap you, or whatever the gauntlet things she wears, the, the wristy things that have been blue this whole time, are now all red. There is so much red in this movie. It gives it personality. It gives it a color. So it's like they're all zapping each other. Red, red, red. And then they're fighting. Red, red, red. And then Yelena throws that mist stuff in and it bursts. And it's red. And it's the opposite of all of that red. And it's like, you do realize that if you'd color-coded that gold, it reads so much better. And it also ties it forwards and backwards with the bioluminescence in the trees. I had to wonder whether or not the mind control in this movie was because the research they steal is from shield while it was still hydra Mm. whether it is in any way connected to the mind stone that hydra had for a short period of time there Mm. which would also make yellow yellow more sense uh color than the red because i thought the red mist what the like antidote 
looked almost exactly like the ether from Dark World, and yeah. I found it's not dissimilar. Also, there is a term to see the red mist, which makes you angry. This is the opposite of that. When you when Yelena gets blasted with it at the beginning, you're like, oh shit, she's just met, given a rage from 28 days later, and it's like, no, this is this is oh shit, I've just stabbed my friend, and now I've got no, a. This, this is the good red cloud. Yeah, just. It's a bit of a weird choice from a color color yeah. theory background. I mean, it's it's a tiny thing, but just like colors mean things, and if you're going to make everything red, the red itself becomes meaningless. Apart from, it's gushing red, it's dripping red, everything is red. There is Captain <laughs> Finally. The Red Guardian's time has come! I grab hold of his shield. And face to face, it's a test of strength! Oh! Oh no! <laughs> like I think he's going to beat me. Anyway, this shield, you know, that he carries with him like a like a precious baby blanket, you know. I, I use it to my advantage. I take it, I push him out the window. And I make my escape. Huh? What year was this? I don't know. Like 83, 84. You know? Captain America was still frozen in ice then. That's some toxic shit right there, but it's juxtaposed against how emotionally vulnerable Alexei really is throughout the rest of the movie. I've seen people disappointed that Red Guardian didn't get to have more fights. His main one is, of course, going up against Taskmaster. I counted, 28-second fight would actually have gone on a lot longer, and he'd have gotten a lot more hits in. But do we really want to see Antonia and Alexei hitting each other a lot? That's not... Like, ultimately, he could be just running around smacking up the Red Room guards. And while we have seen that, it's rare that we get to see a fat hero kicking wholesale ass and his fatness not really being the butt of the joke. So in that regard, yeah, I actually agree. This is a definite improvement on Fat Thor, who was just a punching bag. There it was like Chris Hemsworth, who has a body everyone would kill for, horrendously depressed, and being teased for the symptom of that depression. But here, I think we all know David Harbour is fairly chonky. So it's more about who Alexei actually is or thinks he is. But that's kind of the point of his character. He keeps going on about his glorious days. I fight Captain America. They really play into the old man's vanity. Old man's vanity. And he's actually not that shit hot at doing that kind of stuff. They didn't belabor the point, but like he's there as support and that seems to be enough. He gets them out alive and he supports Milena repeatedly. And he ends up being the butt of a lot of jokes. But he's also a dad. And he does that part of it surprisingly well. Even if he screws up repeatedly, 
It's that it's Homer in the first few seasons of The Simpsons where he screws up but keeps trying because he wants to make things right. Mm, yeah. I also I I'm I'm saying he's old. I just checked and he's the antithesis of that whole Bond gets with girl who's young enough to be his granddaughter. He's like 38 He is nine years older than Scarlett Johansson. Not on <laughs> any level is he old enough to be her dad. So they I aged him up going... <laughs> I was curious what the ages were on, on their fake parents because mm. it didn't, they didn't seem to track in my mind, but yeah. I haven't really looked them up yet. Uh, Rachel Weisz they... is, is a little older than David mm. Harbour. She's... Um, she was 1970, yeah. he was 74. But they were both playing way older than they actually are. Mm. So she would have had to have had Natasha at 13, 13 if they 14, were a believable yeah. fake family, mm. which I mean is not mm. unheard of, but gosh. Yeah. Um, I do think another point with Red Guardian about why he maybe isn't kicking as much ass as you might want. And from a plot construction standpoint, if he was an extremely useful fighter, would they have put him in jail for the last like 30 years mm. russia would have been if he was using that him. useful mm. they would have used him mm. yeah. it seems like he was maybe more brawn than or maybe he was just hard to control because he does pretty much switch sides as soon as he gets you know ample opportunity to do so see he's quite different at the beginning they're almost two completely separate characters it's almost like banner and the hulk which makes me think of what Alexei would have been like just as a regular spy or a deep cover agent. This brings me to a bit that We Hate Movies did on one of their shows on My Father the Hero. Nothing to do with this movie, and it was years ago. But they're four fat guys who like to make jokes about being fat. And Gerard Depardieu in that movie made them think of... I had a great idea for a movie. It's, it's like, it's, it's an international bar, maybe we're in Morocco, and it's two... Rick's American. Yeah, it's, there you go. Yes. It's two spies. One played by Gerard Depardieu. He's a French spy. And uh -huh. then you got Ray Winstone as a British spy. Oh. Two fat spies going at it. Can it be called Two Fat Spies? I think I like Two Fat Spies. <laughs> that would be a great movie. It would. It would be like a real creaky, talky kind of movie. Dude, it would be so a big con. Casablanca The Return colon Two Fat Spies. And they're just constantly sweating and dabbing their foreheads with napkins. <laughs> they're mysteriously, they keep ordering appetizers over and over again. Like that's it's, kind of, and you don't know what the appetizers mean. Right. It's like, oh man, they're just trying to out-eat each other for the fate of the of like microfilm. I love this idea so much. And apparently it's like an Applebee's in Morocco. <laughs> Yes, they're in Applebee's in Morocco, clearly. Full Destroy the opponents. I have a question, Fastbar. Do you yield? <laughs> Do you yield? It's like in Raiders of the Lost Ark when uh, yes. she's out drinking everyone, but it's plates of food. <laughs> like, clean the plate, and you turn just it turn it upside down. down and slam it on the table. Karen, yes. Karen Allen has strawberry syrup all over her face. <laughs> I, you Ooh, know I like that. We've made a lot of fake movies in this show. This is the one I want the most. <laughs> you could do this. You mm -hmm. could do this. Mm -hmm. And on the beach, Ray Winstone looks out, laughing, eating a whole fried halibut. <laughs> <laughs> like an apple. <laughs> Let me ask you something, my friend. How many meatballs do you believe you could eat in one <laughs> sitting? <laughs> if your number ain't in the double digits... I've clearly won. You haven't come here to play. <laughs> come here to play. <laughs> oh, they've got like Baccarat chips next to them as well. 
some sort of gambling apparatus goes on. I love this. Oh, yeah. So obviously at the beginning when I saw Ray Winstone embracing David Harbour, I was like, shut up, brain. Shut up, shut up, shut up. This is serious. He seems to recognise the limitations of his own abilities, that he is ultimately, he's the person who's there to punch things. He's not a lot of use if there isn't anyone to tell him who to punch. Just give me someone to punch. Mm. I was going to save a, uh, a potential, um, like, oh, what do you think this actually uh, meant? But we can just hop, skip and jump through it. He mm. ke- kept going on about fighting Captain America. And they made a point repeatedly within the film uh, that um, it was during the 80s. I think they said 1984. 84, which obviously, well, Steve was frozen at that point. So... Uh, Who was he fighting? Now, this was obviously put out before uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. So the second time I watched it, I went, Isaiah Bradley. And then I thought, no, the time doesn't match up on that either. And then I thought, but maybe it does. And then I went to um, look at interviews. And David Harbour said, in his mind, he believes it. And that's all that mattered to me. I didn't, uh, I didn't, like, when I was performing as him, I wasn't... Um, trying to formulate a way wherein he, like, you know, wherein I was aware that what he was saying was not possible. Mm. In his mind, he has convinced himself that he genuinely fought Captain America. And Kate Shortland said she believes that he definitely did fight Captain America, but we shall see how that happened, which is another way of saying where Marvel will figure that shit out somewhere down the line (laughs) and then you'll go ah in like 2026 it did occur to me that it could be um, that like information getting behind the Iron Curtain in the mid 80s was was limited so it's entirely possible that in 1984 he fought somebody that the Russian government told him was Captain America yeah just from a pure like functionality in the moment like it it tells you something about his character that he is either confused or a liar, and he is very concerned with stuff, what happened in the good old days. And so, like, in the moment, it serves a perfectly coherent screenplay purpose. And if you need to build out from that, you can, kind of like the party in Age of Ultron, where, like, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter who could for sure lift the hammer. Just that sequence and everyone's reactions to it was, you know, the the important part of the movie, and it works in that context. And if if we get like a payoff later, you know, that's really cool. But it, it is kind of a, an issue where people have been trained to look like 10 or 12 movies ahead every time someone mentions anything that might have been a, a member berry. This is very true. And, and honestly, one of the things that I like most about Red Guardian, about Alexi as a character, is is the thing that he is not there for. And that is uh, the other thing that very usually goes hand in hand with the... A woman who's had a traumatic or abusive past is some serious daddy issues. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that Nat doesn't have them, but they are not with Alexi. She's transposed them onto Dracov. Mm-hmm. And that enhances what I said at the beginning about uh, Antonia being a, a reflection of herself because she sees Dracov as the, the dad that she had to overthrow and who now she's had to overthrow twice. If they are going to do something with this whole Red Guardian supposedly fought Captain America in the 80s thing, it would be an interesting opportunity to bring back the version of Captain America that existed in the comics between World War II. Commie Smasher, who is canonically in the comics no longer real Steve Rogers, 
But that makes perfect sense for somebody for him to have fought thinking it's Captain America and then nobody wants to talk to talk about except for people, you know, behind the Iron Curtain. Honestly, seeing him work here, I'm actually even more annoyed at that rubbish Hellboy movie that came out starring David Harbour because he can clearly do stuff. And that film did not do stuff with him. Yeah. He was the best thing in a bad lot of of elements in in that thing. Just a a brief note about his tattoos, by the way. I don't Mm -hmm. know if anybody noticed, but on his um, left shoulder, he's got a dark-haired woman. And I briefly wondered if it was Melina. I think it is. I think that's supposed to be her. Their relationship is actually something I quite enjoyed about this movie. As understated as it is, is that... You could have very easily done the jokey, well, they were a fake family and the parents really actually hated each other. But instead, they seem to have just been like really into each other and they're happy to see each other again. And everybody's cool with it, which Mm. is just kind of nice. They have a really interesting, fun chemistry. The fourth act that we've just... um stumbled into uh, as our helicopter crashed downwards, (laughs) running out of fuel. I know how it feels. Like, this is where you get some of the best, like, the funniest, driest, darkest lines. And and Florence Pugh's, like, this is where Yelena really differentiates herself from Nat because she's she's new to the world like they when she got hit with the red mist like that really seemed like she, the, the way she explains it you're not sure what part of your brain is really you because the, the you're being driven forwards by your commands that's again what i think the usb stick in the back of taskmaster is it's more direct than the rest of them but she's also dry and sarcastic and that's sarcastic as well but she's also girlish and vulnerable but she's also honest and acerbic and sometimes devastatingly direct so even though she's vulnerable she and like like i say girlish she doesn't have that kind of like she's not actually infantilized like they, they, they could have leaned into the whole catty baby sister side of her but i'm really looking forward to this personality and her delivery up against you know some of the uh, the other Marvel greats, I think she will be a shining star moving forwards. That sequence when they're sat around the dinner table, and she is hurt by the idea that 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 Melina so casually says after torturing a pig in front of them, by the way, which is enough reason to get all the kids in the audience uncomfortable if they weren't already uncomfortable with everything else, saying it wasn't real. That, that, that's the core of the movie. That's the point there where you realize act one was the fantasy that this is real, that this is reality, and that the adults knew that it wasn't, and that Yelena had no reason to suspect that it wasn't, that, that she, to, to her this was reality, and that Nat was caught in between. You know, when she says to her at the end, it was real to me too, and they, they, they have that reconciliation... Like, they don't usually spend this much time in a a comic book film or a superhero movie or a Marvel film or even just a sci-fi just having domestic drama. And even though what they're talking about is exotic and unusual and we can't relate to being super spies, the fact that they're able to kind of fall back into their roles allows this 
the hurt that Yelena's going through, that Nat is protecting herself from, to really register. So the flip side of that being when, again, like I said, uh, Alexei's real skill is coming in and trying to talk to her about getting frostbite and his father pissing on him. <laughs> it's the singing American Pie and the way that Florence Pugh looks at him like a child regaining trust. That is a dynamite piece of cinema. This film really demonstrates one of the, like, principles that Guillermo del Toro talks about when selling a fantasy world and fantasy creatures to an audience is you have to show, quote-unquote, the monster in repose. And so the fact that we have everyone very deliberately all wearing their suits, like, Red Guardian puts on his suit to go to dinner, and then they just sit around the table and have dinner— and argue like a family right down to the what I didn't say anything that's, that's not, not fair, fair. eat some food so... I don't want to eat anything that's <laughs> very like Russian Eastern European family exactly and so you you get to use the the best aspects of that kind of like swerve to ground everything with the characters and and really refocus since you've just regained time with all this you know all, all these characters in this family unit and like you said, Kate Shortland can basically switch on a dime with whatever the, the scene calls for. So, like, she can have Natasha and Yelena throwing each other around the apartment, but then she can also have them kind of, like, griping at each other because sometimes when you haven't seen your sister for 10 years and you argued on the phone the last time, you got to scream at each other for a little bit until you can catch up. Hmm. And this this moment here, like, it's... It's the if the third act where they have Alexi delivers an action climax, this delivers an emotional climax to follow that leading into the finale. Yeah. The the standout performance moment for me uh, coming from Florence Pugh is when they're when they're at the table and she's saying that part about this was the best part of my life and you're telling me it's not real. When we praise actors for being able to bring um, emotional legitimacy to their performance, it's often to do with them bringing up a a level of emotion that we don't customarily see people demonstrate in day-to-day -day life. It's why they keep giving Oscars to men who do shouty speeches. Leonardo DiCaprio has a mode he goes into where he screams savagely yeah. and it impresses people over and over again. Absolutely. What she does here is almost the opposite of that. And it's not that kind of damp everything down and not demonstrate any emotion at all. But there is a there's a moment where she she kind of she's trying to talk and she can't because she's so on the edge of tears and, and not wanting to let that get in the way of the fact that she has something important to say. And she does this, she does this gesture where she just kind of, I don't even know how to describe it, but she just like blows out yeah she inhales and then then slowly like controlled just 
Yeah, it's like it's like she didn't have to perform mm. that emotion. All she did was open a floodgate, and now the performance is actually in doing Holding the thing that in, pulls yeah. that back. And that's I've never seen anyone do that on camera before. And I've never seen anyone else do that. I've seen Florence Pugh do it before. Yeah, it's she clearly did it in her women. thing. Yeah. Um, but I, I just, I loved it. It just totally sold that moment for me. Mm. I'm very excited to see more of her in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. She's just, it's so engaging to watch, and she's got such a clear control of her craft, and does so in a way that is still extremely likable, even if she's doing things that are not always what you want the character to be doing, which I assume is going to be a lot of what she's doing moving forward based on the end of the end credit stinger there. Like I know that X-Men, the origin of Wolverine's jacket made people groan, but if you're going to do the origin of some clothing that someone has worn previously, this is the way to do that. It represents their relationship. It's not just like a random thing from a stranger who yeah. now you've got their dead son's motorcycle. It's the antithesis of uh, um, Solo, where it's like, where did he get his famous blast tech blaster from? Oh, Woody Harrelson just threw it at him over a fire. <laughs> that's, that's, that's cool. Okay. Now I know. And also... How, how did Wolverine get his jacket? An old man gave it to him, and then their house exploded. <laughs> Like, Brilliant. within minutes. Yeah. The incidents were related. Also, back me up on this, Mackenzie. The mention of lots of pockets, that's not yes. an accident. <laughs> Women's clothes don't have enough pockets in them. You could put anything <laughs> in there. You don't even know. <laughs> Can you imagine how frustrating it would be to be raised in a culture where everything sucks, but at least you have enough pockets to carry all of your stuff on your utility belt, and you get free, and you go to buy your own clothes for the first time, and almost nothing has pockets? Yes! It would just... How would you even function? Absolutely. How am I supposed to live? I have, now I have to buy a house because I don't have enough pockets. That's fine. I, I wear utility vest the whole time. Also, she says when they're talking about the the family lives that they um, that they dreamed of and the stories that they told themselves, and Nat has that brilliant line about that's not my story, but I don't know what my story is because I never let myself be alone long enough to think about it. Hmm. Um, Yelena says that she wants a dog. And she gets a dog. Yeah, nice. It's a dog, and she names it Fanny. <laughs> it almost feels like Melina shows up too late in the movie because it's like they meet her, and she says, "I have betrayed you," and then we 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 get rushed to uh, Act Five. But it's almost like she's not a toxic influence, but she is kind of complicit in sort of helping with the whole mind control thing in an unquestioning way, which. Like, makes her feel very much like she's still under this yoke. Mm. Well, she points out, she says she was cycled through the Red Room four times. Yeah. Which suggests that either she was a bit, little bit too uh, much retaining of her individuality and they kept having to put her back in, or they just wanted to keep her close to base because, as a strategist, she was useful. And I like the fact that uh, Nad asked after her own real mother because it matters to her, mm. not because I want to know what sacred bloodline I come from. Yeah. As opposed to, say, Guardians of the Galaxy, where I was like, well, you got to hold that stone because it turns out you're related to a living planet. Absolutely. I will say, though, that that follow-up is the one bum note for me. Yeah. Because uh, the the line that she gets, that Nat gets about, my mother threw me out in the street like garbage, I, I'd never knew who she was. 
that being the setup and then to follow that up with oh no your your mother really did want you and it it just felt a little bit like um the it it wasn't so much that because the idea of her she did have a mother who got bought off but changed her mind and wanted to get her back. I see what you're going getting. It's emotionally at here. important. It's yeah. the line about you were a genetically perfect child and you were yeah. you were selected yeah. and they they came after and, and found you and wanted you. If if that is rushing from. Uh, Force Awakens all the way fire Last Jedi to Rise of Skywalker, Rise of Skywalker in like two scenes. Exactly. And <laughs> and even worse, it counters what they say about the the, all the widows as a whole, yeah. which is they're trash. Nobody wants them. I just pick them they're up. They're girls. So I pick them up this, and I use them. So why was this one a perfect specimen that you went after on purpose? That, to me, that there's an internal inconsistency there. <laughs> Well, that we knew she was going to grow up to be Scarjo. That's that's how. There is that. I'll <laughs> see if I can edit that line out then. If I, well, if I'm doing this very light, yeah. Black Widow. Like I said, edit. I don't mind the bit about her mum changing her mind and wanting her back. That's fine. It's just that bit about her genetics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the genetics. But that also got to me. I was mostly just in my initial watch relieved that the movie didn't do two things. I was slightly worried it was going to do at that point, which is. I was worried Milena was going to become the, like, actual big villain of the piece where it's like, I well, I thought she you was can't... Taskmaster. Years ago, yeah. I thought she was Taskmaster. I, th- I was just that they could have done the, and actually it's this evil bad woman mm. who is responsible for the most villainous stuff, even though a man's running the program. Yeah. And it's part of the government initiative. But they didn't go there. I was extremely grateful for that. And then I was slightly worried they might go with the... And actually, Natasha was Dochev's daughter the whole time. Uh, that's another, like, extremely obvious yeah. thing. Or that Milena's had, daughter. Yeah, like, and Milena's daughter. Oh, yeah, daughter you were my thing. daughter all along. That's another overused plot point, which again fixates on bloodlines. Reinforcing the idea that you are more special to the person who birthed you, or even just to the dude who contributed one cell. It's a family not related by blood, but related by bond. And then she, that whole line that she has about the end, that it turned out I had two of them, one of them's not doing too good right now, which suggests that her other one actually is doing pretty good right now. They're, they're together. As the ruins of the Red Room come clattering down, and all of these women together united, who are now free to be individual, beyond the template they were forced into as they exit the gunship and they help up Antonia, Taskmaster, to effectively bring her into the fold. It felt like Natasha was just healing with every second of that. So there's a very concerted moment as everybody's, you know, off making their uh, exits and Ross is driving in with this cavalcade of uh, Secret Service and that's just kind of looking at him. She's not running, she's not hiding. The camera just sweeps sideways. It's not a Michael Bay move. It's just a moment of Natasha making peace with herself. They've all been set free at this point. Probably one of the most important distinctions between 
uh, Antonia, the Taskmaster, and the Winter Soldier, and we've talked about how they parallel each other a lot, is that while Steve definitely feels responsible for what happened to Bucky, it wasn't his fault. Bucky was doing a different thing and completely disconnected from their initial accident there was captured and brainwashed whereas Natasha knows very well as soon as she knows Atonia is alive that it's her actions that put her in a state that made her this particular version of herself that made her usable as a tool to that extent and the responsibility that she takes on for having ignored her past for this long and coming to terms with it and finally dealing with it is kind of the brilliance of the arc of this movie that I really enjoyed. Yeah, she she literally lays to rest the ghost of her past and in that moment it feels like she's finally taking, because she's told everyone else to go, she's finally taking a moment alone before Ross gets there because she knows she can get away from Ross, whatever. But she's taking a moment alone to figure out what her story's gonna be. Like she's finally getting that 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 time to just like sit inside her own head without those memories haunting her. And her first impulse is, okay, I've helped fix this family. Pulled it together, it's messy and broken. It's still good. Let's go and fix this other family. And it is uh, almost a reprise of the end of Winter Soldier where she says, I blew all my covers, I have to go find another one. Mm. This is, like you say, Brendan, it's it's giving herself a moment to figure out her story, not in the sense of making one up in order to uh, put Ross off the trail or something like that, but working out who she's going to be now and where she's going next. School of Movies is supported by Glorious Motherland. I am kidding, it is self-elected socialism. And we are bankrolled by people who want to see art brought into being. So here is a list of everyone who has ever either fought beside or bested Captain America. Aaron Lecluse, Abel Sibart, Alex Outreach, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Datchler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Shealy, Duran Barnett, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Gregor Downing, James Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joseph Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Wasta, Kat Esman, Kevin Vehi, Lorraine Chisholm, Mark Luksh, Marty Hui, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasko, Sarah Montgomery, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. We salute each and every one of you.
So before we go, can our guests tell us where we can find their best stuff? Let us start with Mackenzie. You got at least two podcasts. Yes, I do have two podcasts. Uh, I do reviews of Muppet-related or Jim Henson-related properties over at the Rainbow Connection podcast, uh, which you can find on podcast apps under that title. As well, me and my husband and our friend do a podcast reviewing every video game movie adaptation ever made in chronological order. So if you want to hear me suffer instead of enjoy something, <laughs> you can ca- you can catch that at uh, Video Game the Movie the Podcast or you can find me on Twitter at Kenzie Phoenix, and you'll be able to find all my stuff through that. And Brendan. Oh, well, you can find me on Twitter at BLC Agnew, but um, I also uh, do some writing over at uh, Synapse, that's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot C-O. Um, if you haven't had your fill of red-haired former assassins and their found families going on journeys of redemption... Um, <laughs> I was going to make that appropriate uh, connection <laughs> at the beginning, and then I was going to say something about Mackenzie being a bit like Yelena, but I thought, no, I'll let you do that yourselves. <laughs> I wrote over 3,000 words on the initial three Rurouni Kenshin movies that came out during the, the 2010s decade, uh, since they're releasing the final two on Netflix this month. Um, so I dropped that on Synapse if you want to read more about like some silly anime action movies that also have a big focus on conflict de-escalation and non-lethal heroes and their, their awesome, you know, fighty fights. Um, also, I on the uh, Matinee Heroes podcast and we just did an episode on Arrival, which I believe drops on Saturday. One of the best films we've ever seen. Arrival. So I'm going to leave you folks on some really powerful low-key music, which I found myself humming as I walked out of the cinema. It is Retrograde by James Blake. And I'm going to make this the credits music of my very light re-edit, which only changes a couple of things. And I would suggest folks listening to the lyrics and uh, watching the music video as well, because this one will stick with you. Next week, we stay in the MCU as Sean and I bring on the God of Mischief. It's Loki. Until then, I have been the sleeper agent you came to know as Alexander Shaw. And I have been super spy Sharon Shaw. You've got a real Boris and Natasha thing going on here. <laughs> I've been in prison, so I've a lot of energy. <laughs> Just thank goodness we didn't do that the whole way through, because we were gonna. We were like, no, 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 let the drama be its own thing. You were gonna. <laughs> and, as they say, this school is He's out. out. Everybody else, we're alone.
on the idea that they could uh, there could be a, a Black Widow trilogy that all kind of fit in prior to Endgame and cover because like I said we've got between five and eight years of stuff to do when the Earth what was... a movie if I get emails from a raccoon yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know you know what that this could have been an email um... <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you got down there an earthquake I'm a raccoon I might remind you but. Uh... <laughs> I got this, this gun going on. Is that going to help? Um, <laughs> I, I want this movie now, actually. But okay, this is the Guardians Holiday Special. I think Jar Jar is a good, a great actor. Really, he fun. is. He, he is he's an excellent actor. Really he's got good t- comic timing. He just doesn't have the great command of the English language, which isn't his fault. He's French. Nope. It's like having Kevin James have to remake Paul Blart Mall, Mall Cop in France and have to speak French the whole time. Well, I'd love to see that fucking fail. Better movie, I would guarantee. <laughs> yes. It would definitely than, be more than interesting. Than this or the original Paul Blart. Original Paul, Paul <laughs> yeah. Blart. And, yeah. and probably this, too. Yes. You get Romain Duras in there somehow? Sure. Yeah. You know, I, Paul Blart, oh my God, that's not his real name. What was it again? Kevin, Kevin James. James. Yes. He can play the American fat spy, yes. the one from the CIA. Oh, oh right. yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you know, do you know who his handler is? Joe Don Baker. I was just gonna yeah. say, totally. Oh, yeah, get in there, fat spy, <laughs> Kevin James. I'm retired. Get down on those ribs. We gotta train you, boy. Now you gotta eat these hot dogs. <laughs> well, oh, yeah. I've done my time. You got. 
10 minutes to eat all the pickles and drink all the juice. You Maybe retire early because I contracted adult onset diabetes from all the eating. You wouldn't believe what I ate in the 1970s. You kids got it locked. How much whipping you eat last night? I mean, at least now you don't have to smoke cigarettes all the time. <laughs> Indoors. That's what we did in the. That's what we did in the seventies, brother. On top of the cream. Oh God. <laughs> oh, God. oh yeah, you want a nice bowl of creamy cigarettes? <laughs> <laughs> That's disgusting. Oh, 